from Manhattan to Melbourne, places like Carnegie Hall, the Juilliard School and the Melbourne Recital Centre have burgeoning artist development programs, taking musicians out of the concert halls and directly into the communities. With them, they bring re-energised ideas and performance styles to this new way of thinking about the role of a musician in our diverse societies. Join international guests Amy Rhodes from Carnegie Hall and Benjamin Sultan from Juilliard, along with local musical giants Genevieve Lacey, Paul Grabowski and the Australian Council's Paul Mason. Hosted by Marshall Maguire, this session focuses on stories about growing relationships between artists and community and how they make our city stronger, both culturally and socially. Presented by Melbourne Recital Centre with Carnegie Hall, the Juilliard School and as part of Mellon NYC, this talk is generously supported by the Victorian Government. Let's hear their stories. Thank you, everybody, and good evening. Welcome to the Salon at the Melbourne Recital Centre. My name's Marshall Maguire, and I'm the Director of Programming here at the Centre, and it's a great pleasure to welcome you for this, this chat, this informal chat, because it will be an informal chat, uh, as part of the, we'll call it MEL and NYC program that's being run uh, in collaboration with the National Gallery of Victoria and their MoMA exhibition, and generously supported by the Victorian Government. Um, but first of all, I'd like to acknowledge uh, that we meet tonight on the lands of the Bunwurrung people, and we acknowledge elders past, present, and future, and celebrate a thousand generations and more of storytelling and music making on this site. And I always like to say Womanjika, which is the Bunwurrung word for welcome. So Womanjika to Melbourne Recital Centre. And a great pleasure to welcome our guests. And um, we've got an eminent panel tonight. Um, people I'm all very impressed with and very pleased to be sitting here because I never see them. And it's great to, to get together and have a bit of a chat. Uh, on the far left is Paul Mason, the Director of Music at the Australia Council, the Federal Government's Arts Funding and Advisory Body. And Paul is really looks after federal funding for music in this country and uh, apparently is a former bass player, but we may not talk about that tonight, and a, a, long, a long career in broadcasting as well. Genevieve Lacey is well known to all of us as a recorder player, as a, as a, a, a creative wunderkind, a collaborator par excellence, and also the director of the Future Makers program for Music Aviva and artistic advisor for Eucaria, a venue in the Adelaide Hills. And also, I'm very pleased to say, our 2018 artist in residence. Next to Genevieve is Paul Grabowski, who is the, um, now it's a long title, it's the Executive Director of Performing Arts at the Academy of Performing Arts at Monash University, pianist, composer, festival director, broadcaster, uh, and also, I'm also very pleased to say, our very first artist in residence last year at the Melbourne Recital Centre. Ben Sosland is uh, from Juilliard School from New York City and uh, is uh, the founding administrative director of the Juilliard Historical Performance Course and currently the assistant dean for the Kovner Fellowship, which is a, a big scholarship program at Juilliard. So, Ben, welcome to Australia. Welcome to Melbourne. And Amy Rhodes is the director of Ensemble Connect, an amazing program at Carnegie Hall, uh, an artist development program uh, at that uh, august institution. So please welcome them all to Melbourne Recital Centre. <clears throat> Tonight, uh, this program is being recorded for podcasts, so uh, we'll speak clearly into our microphones. And uh, the, the session will run, we'll have an overview of the programs that Amy and Ben run in New York City. And then we'll have a sort of panel discussion about really what it means to be an artist and a, a, a musician in the 21st century. Obviously, uh, classical musicians have for centuries had all sorts of interesting 
diverse, unclassifiable careers. Musicians have always composed, performed, travelled, taught, uh, worked in communities, not worked, worked in other jobs, and nothing has really changed. We still face that challenge today. But somehow there's a feeling that, uh, that classical music, in a way, has moved away from the communities that it previously served, or the individuals in classical music are somehow removed from everyday life. Um, we've all heard the story, you know, when you tell people you're a musician, they say, yes, but what's your real job? And um, it's part of the discussion today is look at what are the other opportunities for engaging uh, in music in our communities. Here at Melbourne Recital Centre, we present over 600 musical events a year, and when people tell me that classical music in Melbourne is dying, I tell them they haven't been here every night of the week to often see up to two concerts. And we respond to and anticipate the needs and interests of our audiences, because without audiences, we're merely performing in an empty room, which isn't much fun. And we also have an extensive program of Beyond the Centre activities, working in aged care and in uh, regional Victoria, and also an online platform to take what we do here to the rest of the world. Um, all of that relies on the communities in which we work, and I do say communities, to need and desire and support the music that goes on. Uh, and tonight we will look at that program and uh, in the spirit of bringing Manhattan and Melbourne a little bit closer together, um, we'll hear from Amy first about Ensemble Connect and the fabulous work you do there. So ladies and gentlemen, Amy Rhodes. Thank you so much. It's really an honor to be here and a huge thank you to the Melbourne Recital Center and Ewan Murdoch and Marshall McGuire for, for bringing me all the way out here for this. So as an introduction, I'd like to just give you some background and context about Ensemble Connect, describe the range of activities that our fellows do while they're in the program, specifically some of the training that we provide as part of our professional development, and share a few examples of projects that our alumni have created after leaving the program. Ensemble Connect works with classical instrumentalists and specifically in the context of New York City. And I'm looking forward to hearing about the cultural context in Melbourne and in Australia and to see where our approaches have been similar or different. So Ensemble Connect was launched in 2007 by Carnegie Hall's executive and artistic director, Clive Gillinson, and the then president of the Juilliard School, Joseph Polisi. And the idea for the program came out of a need that they saw that there were so many graduates coming out of conservatories and very few jobs for them. They wanted to create a program that would prepare top-level instrumentalists to think more broadly about what their careers and lives, really, in music can be. After 11 years, we now have 119 alumni, in addition to the 18 musicians who we call fellows, who will be starting the program with us in September. Ensemble Connect is part-time for our fellows, and they each receive a stipend and health insurance, which health insurance in the United States is a really, really big deal. <laughs> Fellows are selected through a rigorous application process. There's a pre-screening process, there's a live audition and an interview, and the interview is just as important as the performing round. This past cycle, we had over 350 applications for 18 spots, so it's a very competitive program. And we select musicians who not only perform at the very highest level, but who are also really curious and passionate about the idea of integrating education, community engagement, advocacy and entrepreneurship in their, uh, into their performing lives. As part of the program, our fellows perform, 
They teach in a New York City public school. They develop what we call interactive performances that go out to school and community venues. And they attend weekly professional development workshops. And our goal is that our fellows take the skills and the tools that they gain in the program and that they use them to define their own paths once they leave. Ensemble Connect is a partnership program between Carnegie Hall and the Juilliard School and also in partnership with the New York City Department of Education. The program is administered by Carnegie Hall and our offices are at Carnegie Hall. So that was all to give you an overview of the program and I thought I'd share some more specifics about the actual activities that our fellows do while they're in the program. So the ensemble doesn't have a set instrumentation which allows them to perform in different chamber music configurations. They have a subscription series at Carnegie Hall and also at, uh, at Juilliard, and they perform elsewhere in New York City as well. Each season we commission a new chamber work and our fellows have the opportunity to work alongside the composer to bring the music to life. Fellows are each partnered with a New York City public school and work alongside a music teacher in instrumental music classrooms. So that's keyboard programs, string orchestras, band programs, and they work in all age groups. So um, from about uh, third grade, which is about eight years old, up through high school, which for us is about 17 or 18 years old. And our fellow fellows visit their partner schools 25 times each year, which is quite a large number. Our fellows travel rather a long ways to get to their schools. Um, next season, we have a fellow who will take a boat um, to get to her school on Staten Island, which is all the way there. Uh, you'll see Manhattan is the island up there, and she lives way up there, so it's a pretty far distance. Fellows develop interactive performances for all ages of school children, and they adapt these for community venues, such as prisons, homeless shelters, senior care facilities and organizations that serve special needs populations. And this is the piece of the program that might be the hardest to explain, so I thought I would show you instead. We gave a concert here at PS21 about Villa Lobos and about the group dynamics in a trio. Yeah, we call it IP, interactive performance, that we perform and then we interact with the audience. To be in sync, it's fun to be in sync. One of our favorite parts is really is getting the students on stage with us and really making sure to bring the audience into the performance and get them involved. That's good, that's good. One kid came up and he was um, like distracting everybody and it was kind of funny. We started waving arms and tried tapping them on the shoulder. People had to work in pairs and do something together and stay in sync. The jump rope activity kind of demonstrated this point really well because the two people on the sides had to be working as a team and making a steady beat for it to even be possible for the person in the middle. And they were like, oh, I get it. There's two people really working together, and one person's doing something really different. One person in the middle would jump, like how um, the solo person played. I'm really lucky um, as a fellow to be put with this school and this faculty. When Carl's in class, 
that's incredibly helpful. I love to turn to the kids and say, well, let's listen to Mr. Oswald play that for us. We get to listen to his musics. He gets to play his oboe, and his oboe is a bit more squeakier than the clarinet. If we had just come here and started the concert by playing this six-minute piece straight through, it would have been kind of a zoo. But by presenting little chunks and connecting it to things that all kids can relate to, each little thing is something they've heard before and it can kind of click into place. The kids responded extremely well to the performance. Having the performance come into the school enables all of our kids to see something. We're bringing that professionalism and that musicianship into the building so that every child can be a part of it and, and feel a part of it. And I think they were. So obviously that was an interactive performance for a school-aged group, um, but the fellows also uh, adapt those programs and bring them into uh, adults, uh, for adults as well. So to support all of these activities and to help the fellows build the skills that they'll need when they leave, we have weekly professional development sessions. It's an intensive part of the program. It's about 150 hours of professional development each year. Um, and all the topics are listed there. Um, as you can see, we try to keep the topics evenly balanced. We cover six topics that we call strands, and each strand has a culminating project associated with it. So for leadership, we ask our fellows to write their own personal vision and mission statements. For entrepreneurship, uh, they plan and pitch a, a business proposal at the end of the year. Uh, there's performance plus audience engagement, in-school support, their interactive performance development and reflection and connection. And we try to make sure that the content of both the professional development and the activities in the program are as relevant to the professional world as possible. Uh, and because of that, the, um, the activities of the program have actually changed quite a bit over the last decade. As I said earlier, we have, a we have 119 alumni. The majority of our alumni stay in New York City as freelance musicians, building portfolio careers that include many different activities. Others have left New York to become university professors. Some have joined major symphony orchestras. Others have joined professional chamber ensembles, and many have founded their own projects and ensembles. And I thought I'd share a few of the projects that directly come out of the work that I just described to show you how their program experiences have directly translated into concrete projects and initiatives. One such example is the Dakota, which was founded by a group of alumni who wanted an outlet to continue the kinds of work that they did during the program. The ensemble is made up of about 30 core members, all of whom are Ensemble Connect alumni. And they do residencies all over the world that combine performance with education and community engagement activities. Nate Tram is a viola alum who was very moved by his experience during the program performing on Rikers Island, which is a jail in New York City. As an alum, he formed his own organization called Music Cambia, which works to bring music lessons into inca incarcerated communities. And he's also a member of the Ataka String Quartet. 
and Alex Lee, a piano alum, uh, as her entrepreneurship project during the program, uh, created plans for a wine and music festival in her hometown of Las Vegas, Nevada. And as an alum, she actually went out and founded her ensemble and also founded an umbrella nonprofit organization called Notes with a Purpose, which works to bring music into schools and communities. So there are many other examples of alumni that are doing really wonderful work. And we often get asked whether there's any one particular path that we expect our fellows to, to undertake after they leave the program. And there's really not one answer. Um, as I said earlier, uh, we, we really want to open the eyes of these talented musicians and help them really create their own path for themselves. And just in conclusion, um, they're mostly coming out directly out of a school environment, and so I thought I'd share some of the key points that our fellows come away with after two years that were actually quite challenging for them at the outset. How to be a beginner again. What it feels like to be out of your comfort zone and to take risks. To enter every experience with a learner mindset how to take initiative and ownership over your own experiences and learning, how to connect to the human experience and therefore make what you do relevant to others and connected to that perhaps, how to make people feel successful, whether it's in listening or participating or whatever it is you're asking of them. To be authentically you and believe in everything that you do or don't do it and to find your joy. And I think you can see all of these elements in the alumni projects that I described and also in these photos. Thank you, Amy. It's very interesting looking at the, that, that list of, of attributes that you're looking for and thinking how closely that aligns with where we start with music. It's your place of joy. It's, it's, it's a learner mindset. It's, you discover stuff. You share it. And then for a lot of classical musicians, of course, what happens is we go into a room and we practice and we come out 10 years later and somehow we've lost a little bit of touch with the, the joy and the learner and with people too. And uh, it's often the case that I think by the time a lot of students get to Ensemble Connect and some of the other programs we'll talk about today, um, we know that they know how to play the violin or the squeaky clarinet or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, but it's the other, the skills and the opportunities that, um, that need to connect. Um, one of the, the driving forces here, we've called it getting to Carnegie Hall. And of course, we thought about that old joke, you know, the young man walking down the street and saying to the old man, excuse me, sir, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? And the old man says, practice, practice, practice. Um, in many ways, Juilliard is the same, one of the most renowned, uh, revered music schools in the whole world. And many students would... would would not, I was going to say would kill to get in, but that's probably not the case. <laughs> would be very um, happy to get very in. Very happy to get in. And uh, once they got to Juilliard, they'd be in the very safe hands with Ben Soslin. So, Ben, please give sure. us an overview of uh, what goes on at Juilliard. Pleasure. I'm, I'm very happy to be here, and I'll echo Amy's thanks. It's, a, it's delightful to be in Melbourne. This is my second time here, and we feel like we've been so warmly welcomed into this community of artists. Um, and uh, it, it couldn't be more different than Manhattan in many ways. Um, although I did have a chance to go to the exhibit at NGV and see, and it was sort of like, oh, old friends hanging on the walls. So it, it's it's lovely when those um, connections can be can be made. So I thought, um, may I assume that people have heard of Juilliard in the room? 
Yeah, so everybody's heard of it, right? People tend to, to know what Juilliard is, but I'm always surprised at how little people may know about it. So I, I thought I'd spend a little bit of time talking about this place where I personally have spent an inordinate amount of my life. Uh, since enrolling there as a singer in 2001, I've never left, so I've, I started working there relatively shortly thereafter. So um, that's what it looks like. Um, Juilliard is located on the campus of, of Lincoln Center, which is um, the most important performing arts complex in uh, America, and I think one of the most important in the world. Um, we share a prime piece of real estate in Manhattan um, on the Upper West Side. That's red circle is where we are, for those of you who are familiar with the, the grid of, of, of Manhattan. Uh, we share this campus with institutions like the New York Philharmonic and the Metropolitan Opera and the New York City Ballet, um, Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center. Um, so many of our faculty are professional uh, musicians with those institutions. Um, this location means that uh, it's a beautiful picture of Lincoln Center at night. Uh, this, this location means that our students are immersed in a community of artists. Um, our geography, I, I think, is one of the reasons that Juilliard provides such an inspiration to, to people who come to study with us. There's al always a chance of a celebrity sighting, even if it's like the dorky classical music kind. Um, but somebody famous is probably roaming the campus. Um, you can look across the, the plaza at the Met Opera there or... Uh, uh, the New York State Theater where the ballet performs, and, and that imbues the place with a, a sort of sense of potential, I would say. Mm. When most people think of Juilliard, they probably think of music, which is logical. Uh, we have 840, approximately 840 students at Juilliard, about 600 of whom are music majors. Um, so that includes classical music, voice, uh, historical performance, and jazz. Um, but Juilliard is also um, home to a very robust uh, drama and dance division. I love showing pictures of the dancers because it's perfect bodies doing perfect things all the time. It's lovely to walk on the third floor of Juilliard and see dancers doing their, their thing. Um, and uh, the, the, the drama division is, is particularly rigorous, I would say. It's our most selective uh, division. Uh, every year there are uh, well over 2,000 applicants for 17 positions. Um, so it's a pretty good thing to get into. Um, we have lots of famous actors. They're probably our most famous alumni because commercially they're very successful. Here are some faces you might recognize. It's, is Orange is the New Black, is that in Australia? Yeah. So it's Daniel Brooks and Adam Driver, Jessica Chastain and Viola Davis, and there are many, 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 many more. Um, one thing uh, I think it's interesting to note is that Juilliard is one-third international. So of all of those students, about 30%, sometimes 32% or so, come from countries outside the United States. Um, so we really do draw from all over the world, uh, China, Korea, and Canada being the most important feeders for our student population. But we always have a few Australians. Is uh, there, I think there's somebody here who's, is there a, yes, there you are, great. <laughs> there's a Juilliard student from Melbourne in the audience tonight. So thank you, thank you for, for coming. Um, this is another view of the Juilliard building. One of our distinguishing characteristics as well is that we're self-contained. So pretty much everything that happens at Juilliard happens under this one roof. We're all in there together. It's a hugely busy place. So all of our classrooms, studios, uh, performance venues, an incredibly busy production department um, are, are all there. We 
um, offer actually seven, more than 700 performances per year. And that's something that people might not necessarily think of as a school, but we are one of New York's actually most important presenters of, of music, dance, and drama. Uh, and that kind of sets us apart as well. Um, uh, so that's uh, something that's particularly intriguing, I think, to, for audiences. There's a, there's a certain level of satisfaction in seeing established artists, but there's a different kind of satisfaction in seeing emerging artists, the future of the arts, as it were. Um, we're fortunate to have Alice Tully Hall as one of our uh, venues, and I have to say, until I heard a concert in the Melbourne Recital Centre a couple of nights ago, I thought we had the best acoustic, but I'm wondering if you do, actually. It's, it's almost exactly the same size as, as the hall here, and uh, it's one of the great um, benefits of, of being at Juilliard, is this is one of our, our, home, uh, our home spaces. So, um, when people think uh, about Juilliard, I hope they think good things, and, and I hope they think about excellence being one, it seems like Juilliard is often held up as a standard bearer of arts education, of, of a certain level of, of accomplishment. And so I thought, I don't know, from my point of view, it would be interesting to talk about how, would, how do we do that, right? How does something become a standard bearer? What's the, what's the, um, the there are so many other conservatories that have great faculties and have great facilities. Um, and I don't know that there's one easy answer to that very complex question, actually. Um, I would say, uh, like our, our outgoing president says a lot of the time, that excellence is not a destination, it's a process. Um, and so we are always in the process of renewing excellence and redefining it for ourselves. Um, I also think it has to do with the unique structure of a place like Juilliard. Um, I like to sometimes joke it's like a cruise ship with the passenger to crew ratio um, that's really impressive. We have so many administrators, so many faculty members for a relatively small school. So it's very hard to slip through the cracks at a place like Juilliard. We really favor a very, very structured approach to education. So once you're there, you're, you're there. You know, that's, that's your job uh, for the two or four years, depending on whatever degree um, you get as an undergraduate or, or, or master's degree student. Um, the other reason, of course, is our selectivity. Uh, we uh, are very picky about the people that we accept at, at Juilliard. Um, you can get into Juilliard only by live audition, so you have to be there in person. Um, every year we have about 27 to 2,700 to 3,000 applications for admission to Juilliard. We accept somewhere between six and 7% of those applicants, um, which puts us sort of in the same uh, range as an Ivy League institution in the United States, like Harvard or Yale. So very, very selective. Um, and so getting into Juilliard is, is an accomplishment uh, in and of itself. Um, here's a little quick video of Adam Driver explaining his, his uh, admission to, to Juilliard. I wanted to come to Juilliard because I knew, I heard it was the best school to go to. Actually, I auditioned when I was in high school and didn't get in. And then later I auditioned uh, after I had a little bit more life uh, experience, I think maybe, and uh, for some reason uh, got in. And I knew the, the alumni that went to that school were the kind of actors that I always liked and respected and they had such a theater history and steeped in theater history and uh, I mean what a, a, a dream that would be to go there. And then Kathy Hood called me on my cell phone and asked me if I wanted to be a, 
a part of Group 38, the, ne the next class. And I uh, said yes, and I was working in the back of a Target distribution warehouse where they just ship goods around, checking the seals of semi-trucks. There's a lot of semi-truck drivers, and I'm in a shack with this other security guard for like eight hours. Um, it's uh, all kinds of smells and uh, things, and, and I remember running up and down the parking lot of uh, the back lot, just kind of yelling, being very excited that I, you know, ha now had a place to go in New York and, and do the thing that, you know, you kind of dream, you know, dream of doing. So, uh, I, uh, one of the quirks of the drama division is that they call their classes groups. So group 38, group 40, group 50, because an actor never reveals his age. And so if you were the class of 1995, somebody could deduce what age you might be. So funny, funny thing. Of course, now we're on like group 54 and it does go in order. So you could kind of figure it out anyway, if you knew. But in any case, um, so the majority of applicants don't get into to Juilliard. But I, I don't know, for me personally, I find every year at the application and, and audition period, it's, it's somehow reassuring to me that so many people want to go into the arts that in this age of sort of rampant consumerism and celebrity and some of the things we were talking about backstage, that there are still that many people, that many young people who want to devote themselves to a, to a life that may not yield employment or income. Um, and so uh, who are these people? <laughs> I always say, who are these people? Who is the ideal Juilliard student? The ideal Juilliard student begins with an absolute commitment to excellence and a kind of restlessness, but that's just the starting point. You have to be open to new experience. You have to be curious. It's not just the technical ability or the talent. It's also the need to express themselves, the need to convey the message to an audience. It might be tempting to think that Juilliard, because of its reputation, is a rather intimidating and rigorous place. And I think one of the biggest surprises for people is to walk in the building and, and experience the atmosphere. We we all work so hard every single day and there's something about that that unites us as a community or as a species even. So we, we are looking of course for, for technical achievement and promise and with the exception of actors who could come in actually without having much previous experience, they're the only ones who are admitted on potential. Um, dancers and, and musicians uh, definitely already show a level of achievement and dedication. It's very different a conservatory environment than a what we would call a liberal arts college where you might experiment with, you know, joining the Spanish club or the chess club or something. You know, you come to Juilliard knowing what you want to do, what your devotion is. We want to know that our students have a capacity for sustained, disciplined uh, practice, that they have a, a real dedication to artistic excellence. Um, we are looking for artists with something to say and we want to help them develop the vocabulary to say it. Um, one of the uh, most important things, I think, to distinguish between education in America and other places is the cost, so I'll be very frank about that. Um, Juilliard is a private institution. We receive zero dollars in local, state, and federal support. So uh, our culture in America is one of private philanthropy, um, it's a very expensive place to go to, ju at, to Juilliard. Um, 
uh, but our development or fundraising goals are almost single-mindedly focused on raising money to give people scholarships. So 91% of Juilliard students receive some kind of scholarship assistance. That could be a few thousand dollars to a full tuition scholarship with room and board and everything else. So it's, it's, a, it's a really big part of the, the operation. Um, and we are uh, kind of uh, I invested in and, and really imbued in this culture of, of uh, private, private philanthropy. That, that, that's what sustains us. I think we'll talk about other models uh, shortly. Um, Juilliard has also uh, placed a huge emphasis in recent decades on what we call artist citizenship, or the artist as citizen, which is to say that it's not just enough to, 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 to play or sing or, or dance or recite your lines really well, but you have an obligation as an artist to impact your community directly. We have a huge outreach program. Students go into schools like Ensemble Connect, they go to nursing homes, they develop their own projects. We have a very robust entrepreneurial initiatives program in which students can apply for money to uh, establish or see some sort of uh, project that they that they are hoping to start through. Um, and right now in our current climate, uh, there seems to be an uptick in activism, I will say, which I think is good, uh, actually, and we'll see where it leads us. But artists seem fired up, especially, to confront a lot of what's, what's going on to really, to really make a difference, to be, to be leaders and to have that sort of uh, impact. Um, so, I don't want to talk for too much longer because there's so much else to talk about. I barely scratched the surface of Juilliard. I hope that maybe gives you some sense of who we are and what we do. It's an incredibly inspiring place to be, I will say that. It's intense and complicated and complex. And when you're dealing with the level of talent that we are walking into that building every day, um, it's a, it's a, it's a uh, sort of generous and wondrous and weird place uh, in all the best possible sense, senses, but I will say that I think we are united at Juilliard by a certain, a certain belief that the arts matter, as simple as that sounds, that the arts really do matter, that they have the, cha the chance to change us, and that they represent the highest uh, level of, of human achievement, and that's kind of what we're after. Uh, I'll leave you with one last video by another famous graduate uh, of, of our, our drama, drama division. Oh, I remember exactly when I realized I wanted to study here was when I actually came from my audition because much to the, contrary to the reputation that the school had at the time, which was that it was closed off, that it was a little robotic, that it was dark, that it was strict, that it was punishing. Um, I got here, and the students who were monitoring the auditions were really nice. I got an instant feeling of, oh, people come here and concentrate. And I, I think I, I can do that. So, so it was really, it was really when I was auditioning. People ask me a lot, what was your big break? It, and they, you know, they want to hear a movie or this or that, and it's getting into Juilliard. Hands down, getting into Juilliard. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Ben. It gives us a great insight into that curious, mysterious, 
big world. It's a, it's a big school with big ambition. And that, that brings me to Paul Grabowski now. And you were talking about looking for musicians with something to say, and we have um, two musicians here with a lot to say. But Paul, you're now at Monash University. This is a, a, a campus where there's a lot going on. We, we sit here at Melbourne Recital Centre in a, a lovely arts precinct. We've got a university nearby. We've got a new building going up. We've got art galleries. We've got the ballet, the orchestra, uh, good galleries around. But Monash is, seems to have huge ambition at the moment, and I wanted to get a sense of what drew you to the uh, Performing Arts Academy and what you're seeking to do there. Well, it's a, as so many things are in one's career, it was a very unusual chain of circumstances which drew me to Monash. But to cut a long story short, I, I was offered the opportunity to become a Vice-Chancellor's Professorial Fellow by the former uh, Vice-Chancellor, uh, Professor Ed Byrne. And Ed had a vision for Monash. He, although his background is in the medical profession, Ed is a great music lover. And he really thought about Monash, which is located for the benefit of our American guests. It's in the suburbs of Melbourne. So it's, uh, it's around about 20 to 25 k's out in the, towards the southeast. And it's surrounded by Melbourne's uh, suburbs of that area particular area which if you can imagine you might think you're in the middle of Melbourne more or less now but actually the geographical centre of Melbourne is located not far from Monash University. So Melbourne has grown in an enormous and almost haphazard way um, over the last 40 years. When I grew up which was very close to Monash University the university was at the fringe of Melbourne. So Melbourne has grown that much again. Um, and Ed thought of that area as being another cultural hub. So he was looking at the city of Melbourne, and I think it's true to say that a lot of great world cities have more than one centre. Um, they have a traditional historical centre, but as the energy is dispersed around the outer fringes of the city, that energy becomes located in different places for all sorts of different reasons, not least of which is that you know, the original uh, version of whatever that part of the city is was probably a separate village at some point with its own history and its own traditions. We can't really say that about Melbourne so much. We can about the inner city area, but not so much about the outer suburbs, although when we look at it you know, from the prism of history in 100 years' time, we'll be able to talk about whatever the the histories of those places were uh, in a more, I guess, uh, teleological kind of way. But um, so he had this thing about, you know, Monash being a cultural hub and his successor, Margaret Gardner, added to that a vision of restoring the original modernist architectural vision of the university. So... Again, I'll try and make this as quick as I can. It's a kind of complex story. But when Monash University was created, uh, when it was imagined, let's say, in the late 1950s and when it was finally realised during the 1960s, it represented everything that Melbourne University didn't represent. It represented a, a sort of countercultural or at least alternative proposition in terms of higher education. And it looked forward to the fact that Melbourne was likely to grow like that because it was a very radical proposition to build a university where they decided to build it. 
there was literally very little around it at the time. So to decide to go and study at Monash University in, say, 1966, you would have been consigning yourself to a fair degree of oblivion. Uh, but because of that, it also developed a very radical and, I would say, bold uh, attitude towards the world. It was the hub of radical student politics during the 1960s, uh, particularly the anti-Vietnam War movement, found its home more or less at Monash. And look, it's become now, of course, one of the group of eight universities, one of the major universities, and it's in the top 100 universities in the world and has all sorts of you know, wonderful things going on. So when I went there, it was without any particular aim in mind but to hang around the music school and see if I could, you know, disrupt. And um, I've been a bit of a disruptor in a kind of a way because um, I was a classically trained musician, but I became a, a jazz musician and an improvising musician. And I've done a whole lot of different things in my career, but they've really been driven by the idea of music being... Uh, a, a calling in the first instance, which I think does play to what you've been talking about in terms of people deciding to do something which would seem counterintuitive. Why would you do something which is probably going to keep you in penury and entertain hopefully quite a few people when you could be, you know, uh, getting $10 million bonuses every year to say nothing of your base salary uh, if you're that smart? But people do, you know, and we do it because we're impelled to. I mean, I, I had never doubted for a second when I was a child that I was going to be a musician. I never thought about the economic consequences of it, and I still really don't, as I'm sure my family can attest. But uh, we uh, musicians who are improvising musicians learn very early that music uh, is something in which you have to really throw a lot of self-reliance. For a start, you've thrown away the score... And that is a very important creative act to make as an improviser, that you have decided at some point, well, no, I don't want to play those notes. I want to play my notes. And uh, that really does mean that you've got to uh, develop an entirely new way of being disciplined. Your whole performance discipline is a different kind of discipline. And I think that idea is very strong out in Monash University. Um, you know, when I went to the conservatorium at Melbourne University, they basically, or some people said, don't play that music, don't improvise, we're not interested in that here, we don't do that here, you know, and don't play jazz on that piano, you know, that's a, that's a Steinway, you don't play jazz on, on Steinways, uh, I'm not joking, uh, unfortunately. But you know, that was the 1970s and um, we've moved on. Um, now... I'm very lucky in that uh, I'm living in an age where there is a tremendous cross-talk between improvisers and players of notated music. Those silos don't really exist amongst performers anymore so much. They still exist in the political apparatus that surrounds our music, I think, very much. And some of those old rusted-on ideas about the relative value of one thing against another thing are very hard to dislodge. I think only time will do that. But we do live in a particularly fertile time, I think, in musical history. And, um, 
you know, we're building a new performing arts complex out at Monash University in which technology plays a very important role. The relationships that we're building with, with colleagues uh, in various different ways, I think will hopefully be very important in the growth of our student body. Um, and I guess in the vaguest possible terms, Marshall, that's what we're trying to do. Thank you for those vague terms, very beautifully expressed. Paul Mason, I'd like to go to you, even though this session is about Mel and NYC, um, we, we invited you tonight because as Director of Music at the Australia Council, you've been there for a while now and you've seen many changes in this organisation. It's a, a, over the last three or four years, it's been the target of much change and, and some opprobrium and, and always people questioning what you're doing, whether you should be doing more. But you have a unique viewpoint, I think, because you have a national view of what's going in all musics, I think that's fair to say. And I just wanted to get a sense of where you see uh, the, the music scene at the moment and, and the role of the artist in that as well, rather than institutions per se, but the role of the individual artist. Yeah, thanks, Marshall. Um, I'd say that I'm sort of the thing that gives me greatest optimism and, and enthusiasm about my job is looking at what individual artists are doing and what small to medium companies are doing. I'm increasingly kind of observing that the large, you know, scale um, brings with it a certain set of problems around um, artistic innovation and change. But when you limit that scale and choose to operate at a smaller level, a whole lot of things open up for you. And I think that's naturally happening in what we'd call the, the classical music world because, as you pointed out earlier, there are fewer and fewer of those jobs that you can walk straight out of a, a conservatorium into for a, for a player. So people have to be more entrepreneurial and come up with their own ideas and start innovating. And the easiest place to, to innovate, I think, is at the small scale. I'm quite interested in innovation because I think it sort of happens at, I know we always talk about it in, in policy terms, but I think real innovation happens where money is no object. So where you're starting something and who really cares? You know, you could all just lose it all tomorrow. So you take the wildest risks. And it also happens where you're such a big institution that you know you're going to be here for 25 years at least. So if you're Samsung, you can say, hey, let's get Björk in to talk about our next mobile phone because who knows what she can come up with. But if you're locked in a cycle where you're uh, an institution that's working on a three to four year financial horizon, there's limited appetite and capacity for taking risks. And I think unfortunately, that's the space where a lot of our cultural institutions are locked into partly because places like the Australia Council only give them three to four years' worth of funding at any one time. Um, but it's it's sort of churning the wheels. And that's why I look to um, the individual artist and the, and the small to medium organisation as the place where really exciting things and new ways of deciding how to have a career as an artist are going to um, take place. The other exciting thing about the Australia Council is that arts grants are, are peer assessed. I think that's that's true. So that artists assess other artists and it, it, it's a fascinating and, and terrifying and terrible thing to be involved with. But it always reminds you about the creativity involved. I did want to ask you a little bit, um, just for some numbers, if I may. People will be aware in, in Australia we have eight full-time symphony orchestras and we're talking about classical music uh, principally tonight. Um, and then there's everybody else. What's the percentages going on there? 
Uh, yeah, well, uh, those, those symphony orchestras are the greatest um, area of expenditure for the Australia Council. So from a total budget of around $200 million a year, let's say, we spend $70 million on those orchestras and a couple of others on the Australian Chamber Orchestra, the Australian Brandenburg and Music Aviva. We're captured within that $70 million. So then we sort of have to divide it up between all the other art forms and um, between organisations that aren't funded in the, the um, epic way that we fund those, those orchestras. The short answer to your question is that what's left for an individual artist is about $9 million a year out of that 200, which is a bit tight. Is that across all art forms? That's across all art forms, and we, we notionally support around eight art forms. So that leads to my next question, is that with that level of support surely comes a level of responsibility to respond to the needs of the communities in which they they flourish. Absolutely. I love that idea of the artist-citizen because I think that that's fundamental to the, the significant level of uh, government support that goes into some of these institutions brings with it a, a high degree of responsibility. And I would observe that sometimes that notion of trying to um, reach out to the community is interpreted by some of those institutions as uh, a job of explaining yourself to the community and sort of getting them enthusiastic about what you do. I suspect that real engagement with community puts on the table the possibility that you might change something that you're doing based on the feedback you hear from the community. And that doesn't seem to be a live prospect in a lot of the community outreach. Which is not to say, of course, that orchestras aren't doing uh, a lot of good work in communities, often uh, uh, um, very uh, small and focused work. And I think that's something that Ensemble Connect and Juilliard is looking at. And also here at the Recital Centre, and we'll talk to Genevieve in a minute about Future Makers as well, uh, about it's, not of, it's often not about the big numbers. It's about going in and making an impact on people's lives in an everyday way, just the way we did when we were three years old, when we were listening to music with our parents and our grandparents in a very natural and organic way. Um, Genevieve, I wanted to talk to you. You've had a career. You're a recorder player. So the first question is, what were you thinking? Um, <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> the, uh, the second thing is that, um, you know, the, the job prospects back then weren't, weren't huge. There are no recorder orchestras that I'm aware of, and if I was, I'd probably do something about it. But you've carved out an extraordinary career for yourself of collaborating, of looking for ideas, of working with people. I just wanted to get a little sense of what drives you to do that and how you do it. Mm, I, I guess I see being a recorder player as a huge advantage because the thing is no one... I've known from the time I was a little girl that there was no job. No one was ever going to ask me to play. So it has always been my privilege to convince people that we might want to work together and that we might want to listen together. And somehow having that mindset from the time that you're really young means that you can create for yourself a really quirky, interesting life. I didn't ever expect to walk into a job, which means from the time you're really quite young, you're thinking in quite a different way. And when I mentor younger musicians now, particularly ones who are really gifted, they've been brought up with a very particular, I would say very romantic and often profoundly out of sync with current reality view of what it is to be a musician. 
and particularly what it is to be a talented musician. And this kind of, I don't even know where this idea comes from, you know. We blame it on the romantics, but I actually don't think that's fair. Because if you look at someone like Liszt, he was an extraordinary entrepreneur. And so many of those people, we say, oh, it all happened in the 19th century. But in actual fact, a lot of those musicians were teachers and publishers and promoters and impresarios and also extraordinary players. So it's kind of vexed exactly where that idea comes from. But sadly, I think it's become terrifyingly prevalent in our teaching of what music is and our teaching of young people in terms of what their expectations might be and even their, our forming of what their dreams might be. And to me that sounds sets up a, a really fundamental problem that's not just social and economic but on some weird, weird level for me is actually a really serious moral problem. So I guess a lot of the work that I do and the life that I live is about saying, well, to be a musician is a privilege. And yeah, it, it comes with almost definitely a very erratic and, and not a great uh, financial recompense. But to live in the country that we live in, in the society that we live in with the education that we've had and the opportunities that, that this world affords us is just outrageously privileged. And to be able to follow this idea of a vocation or a passion or a love, yes, it's impractical and yes, it has some consequences, but, you know, good heavens, how fortunate is that? And, and I think if you remind yourself of that every day, the fact that you're getting up every day to do something that gives you not just joy but a sense of identity and meaning and all of us here will attest, has such extraordinary power to transform lives and communities, then, you know, what could be better? So this idea of the artist as citizen, this idea of artists as disruptors, these are things that resonate really strongly with me. And so this question about why I collaborate, collaborate and how I collaborate, I can't imagine a life not doing that. You know, I, I think the way that we build communities and the way that we potentially build a world that's based on values that are not purely monetary is all about our ability to collaborate, which to me comes down to our ability to listen. Mm. And as musicians, you know, we've spent decades training our ability to listen. We're actually really good at it. And, and I think that's something that I began to learn when I started working in unconventional ways, in absolute fear and terror, finding myself in situations where suddenly I was in a prison, suddenly I was in all sorts of conversations where people were facing grief and despair and dispossession and just plain everyday bewilderment. And thinking, what, what on earth do I have to offer in these circumstances? I don't have any training in any of this. And then suddenly one day I realised, actually, no, this is, this is just chamber music. It's all it is. All I need to do is listen really carefully to what Paul's saying and more importantly to what he's not saying and to watch what his body's speaking out of the corner of my eye, which is what we do all the time when we're playing chamber music. And suddenly all these things start to be... They, they seem possible because as musicians we know how to do that. So I guess that's where the collaboration comes from. 
Can I just say one thing, just to uh, to completely agree with that? When I talk to students, or indeed when I talk to people who've got no idea about even the rudiments of music, about what it takes to be a good improviser, and actually it's a, it's very true of any kind of musician, but I, I'm speaking specifically about my own experience. Th there is a triangle, three major principles involved. The first one is listening. And you know, listening is different from hearing because listening is an activity. You decide to listen to something, you engage. The second thing is being able to play. I mean, you've got to work at your instrument to be able to effectively improvise. You can't just expect that something's going to happen if you don't know how to make it happen. The third thing, and it's a very important corollary to the other two, but really important as a principle, and why music and why all of these things and the, music, and the musician as citizen as strong concepts, is trust. You can't play music with other people if you don't trust them. Because you depend on them and they depend on you. Your performance and their performance are necessarily completely interdependent and you have to give yourself over. In a sense, you have to check your ego or not check it in at the door, but you've got to make it at the service of the collective desire. You have to be working towards something bigger and more important than you. Thank you, Paul. Genevieve, with Future Makers, you're working with uh, outstanding young students, often graduate students, I think, and you select students not just with musical uh, ability, but looking for that something, so that ability to listen and to collaborate and give a little more. Can you tell us, this is a program with Music Aviva and you've spent two years working with Arcadia Winds. Um, tell us a little bit about that and how they responded to the, the challenges of that. Well, I'd like to acknowledge first that Future Makers is extremely inspired by and indebted to Ensemble Connect. So in the early days when we were researching what this program and this project might be, Amy and her colleagues were just extraordinarily generous to strangers from the other side of the world saying, you do what you do brilliantly, can you please tell us everything you know? Um, literally sharing curriculum, um, amazing generosity of, of knowledge and skill. And yeah, we're so grateful to that. And, and hearing Amy's stories are so inspiring to think of the amazing change that that program has made not just for the participants, but for the communities in which they exist. And to know that it's such a coveted project now. And Amy was saying to me the other day that what they're seeing every year is not just that the level of playing goes up and up, but the level of ability and desire to actually engage with communities, with this whole idea of artist as citizen. That's so exciting to know that a program can actually really change the landscape. So future makers, we're babies. We're in our absolute infancy. But I dream that one day, 15 years down the track, you might be able to trace a whole change in thinking and acting and being to some kind of concentric circles that swirl around all these conversations. The other link that I just wanted to make is that Future Makers, our prime education partner is Monash. What we see in Monash and, and the desires at the faculty there and, and through MAPA, the Performing Arts Academy, they've really clearly articulated 
that they want contemporary Australian music to be at the centre of everything they do there. And for us, that is just so um, resonant with what we believe in too. We believe that anything that we're trying to do needs to come out with a deep engagement with what it means to be a musician in this time and in this place. And we take our name really seriously, this idea of making a future for these young artists that we're working with who are unbelievably brilliant, but for the art form and for our community of listeners. So, Marshall, your question was... <laughs> How are they responding to the challenge coming out of a university or a training program as the best bassoonist or oboist and being offered these possibilities? Uh, the people we've worked with have responded with incredible generosity and humility. And I suppose that's something that we're looking for when we're looking to select people. We're looking to work with people with incredibly open minds and hearts who are, to go back to some of the, the things we talked about earlier with Amy's lovely key points, who are very happy to be beginners, who are very happy to be reminded that in many contexts in life, we're the people in the room who know the least. So... The people we've worked with have, have risen to our many challenges just so beautifully. They've taught us as, at least as much as, as we've tried to introduce them to and they've shaped our program. And again, talking to Amy over the weekend and over the years, that's the hallmark of this program and of her program and I think anyone who works in education would, would agree with this, that we need to be shaped by the people we're working with and we need to be shaped by the context in which we're working. So... I hope that what we do will constantly be changing. Music Aviva are fantastically uh, patient with me as this program defines and redefines itself every few months, as I think it must, because it has to be responsive to the environment in which we work. Do Amy and Genevieve both, do you think you're offering new opportunities or are you just unlocking unlocking what's already there that has, has not been realised in the past... 10 years of training. Do you think that these these are musicians, uh, you were talking, Amy, with some of the, the students who seem to have found their place, but maybe that place has already been there, but you've given them permission to step into it. Yeah, I think we've given them permission to think um, that their their lives can encompass a lot of different things. And, and by giving them that permission, they go out and take it. And um, I don't think it's new necessarily. I mean, I don't think um, anything is new anymore, really. <laughs> but um, just uh, the the yeah the 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 opportunity to know that it's okay. And we were talking about redefining um, the definition of success. Um, I think we also have to redefine the definition of excellence to include just a broader set of activities um, in that definition of identifying as a musician. I'm mindful that time is moving on and there will be a chance for the audience, if you've got any questions or, or short comments about um, music, music and communities, it would be really great to hear from you. But Paul Mason, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the residency program that the Australia Council supports too. Um, I've been involved with the Peggy Glanville Hicks House for many years now. Peggy was an Australian composer who left her house as a haven for composers. She said that composers need 
they don't need to worry about paying the rent, they just need time to, to compose. But this has grown out of all proportion since 20 years ago when it started. Um, and I wanted to think about the house concerts that happen at, at the Peggy House as well. It was an incredibly inspirational thing that Peggy Glenville Hicks did. Um, and, and yes, um, the fact that she observed that she could always get an invitation to an opening and feed herself on canapes and, and free wine, but um, securing a place to live was always a bit hard. It was a really insightful observation about the artist's life, I think. Um, and that, uh, that house has become a place where um, artists can have 12 months of uh, permanent residency there, supported with $20,000 as a, as a stipend to assist them living there. And we're really careful to acknowledge that um, it's a house that can accommodate a family um, and we make sure that it's the period of residency starts in January each year so that if people need to move and get their kids into school that that's entirely a possible thing. Um, because I do think that's an interesting point in an artist's life uh, uh, that um, I think of it as the point of no return. Um, you know, you can't go and get another job. You have committed to this thing but you've kind of got a family and responsibilities um, and so what can we do to acknowledge that that's the circumstance for a lot of people but as you say um, that sort of was a, a proof of concept and it's worked really well and so we've expanded that um, relationship with um, historic houses um, bringing together a group of different organizations from within the community um, and making available a series of houses um, that can be given to uh, composers or musicians for a period of 12 months to um, live in using the model of the Peggy Glanville Hicks house. So there's one in Adelaide now, there's one in Perth, um, there's prospects of one in uh, Tasmania and other states and it's going to continue growing. Critical to this program now as it's evolved is the um, input from our key partners who are the historic houses trusts around the country who have um, adamantly uh, sort of wanted to make it clear that part of the, the thing of being in a house is that you, the resident needs to organise a program of activities that the public can attend. They can be talks like this, they can be short concerts of works in progress, um, Whatever it is, there has to be an opportunity to activate the house with the general public um, interfacing with the artists who are in residence. And it's proved spectacularly successful and, um, and they're really exciting events to be at. And, you know, they're small ac actions. We're not, you know, talking about 12,000 people suddenly showing up at someone's house, but they're ongoing, you know. And so these houses become... Uh, a sort of way of looking into an artist's life, hearing some work, and then you know going back to to you know your life as a citizen, and and I think that's a really great sort of um, start in terms of building that knowledge. It's a beautiful way of introducing music into into a street. You you get down the shops, and you know I notice you've moved into the street. What do you do? I'm a composer. Suddenly the conversation starts. Someone's met a composer. Great. Yeah, that's a very good thing. Are there any questions or, or comments that people are familiar with? And I'd encourage you, we've got a microphone because we are on the radio and there's a question over here. Hi. <clears throat> um, thank you so much for all of you for sharing. My name's Kay. Um, a lot of what you said resonated with me. I'm a musician. I'm a pianist um, like you, Paul. I studied classically and then I studied jazz at the VCA. Uh, I studied classically at the VCA and I turned myself into an improviser. But now I'm a bit confused because I do both. So I work as an accompanist, I work as a, as a poor jazz musician. Um, I teach and I, I guess I'm a bit of an activist in my own little sphere. 
Um, I went to New York a few years, a years uh, in 2014. I was pregnant with my first child at the time, but I didn't plan that. And I studied jazz in New York City. And I found that culturally there are some similarities between the two cities, but um, in my travels to Berlin and New York City, I felt like there was a greater value of musicians um, professionally than here. There seemed to be a lot more work for church musicians, paid work as directors, which I find not advertised here at all in Australia. Um, I volunteer at my local church and I coordinate the choir and do things like that, um, but as a, as a, on a voluntary basis. Um, what, yeah, I'm just interested, what, what are your thoughts about um, musicians who go overseas to study, like a lot of my colleagues who were alumni at the Victorian College of the Arts went overseas to either Europe or America to study. My brother's a classical cellist, he went over to Europe um, to, to study and he's finally got a job, praise the Lord. Um, is it necessary to go overseas or are there opportunities in Melbourne or in Australia? Paul, do you want to tackle that one? I think it is necessary uh, in the sense that as a musician living in the 21st century, you've got to have some kind of global perspective because you know, music is one of the great ways that we have to communicate with people irrespective of who or where we come from. Um, I think we can all talk about the many wonderful and useful and inspiring encounters we've had with people simply through playing music or through hearing them play music or talking about music, but particularly the act of making music itself, which is, you know, we talk about music being a language, which is not totally correct about what it is, but it is certainly a method of communicating. And it's a method of communicating things that words don't communicate. So there's something about the human experience and the way we understand life, which music is there in order to be able to help us comprehend. I don't think we ever completely get it, but that's the wonderful thing about it. Music will never give up itself completely to you. You will always have a relationship where you are approaching it and it will slightly always, there will always be the slightest distance between you and the goal. And it must ever be thus. So, you know, for us living on the dark side of the moon, as I like to call it, it's really important to, uh, to share our experience. And, you know, it works both ways. I think people love coming here for the same reason. We are a, an amazingly fecund musical culture it really kind of i find it extraordinary how much music there is in this city alone and the and the standard the the quality of the music making here can be as good as anything that you would ever hear anywhere else um, but we have our own way of doing things and other people have their way of doing things and it's all valuable ben and amy i'm sure that there are just as many musicians in New York City wanting to go to Berlin and Paris and Beijing and Sydney as there are Australian musicians wanting to go the other way too. I guess uh, my, my take on that is uh, I have a colleague who's fond of saying you can never learn less, right? You can only learn more, in fact. And I believe that an artist's palette of expression is directly related to her life experience. And the more experiences that you have in the more places and with the more, the more people, it only enriches your possibilities. 
Uh, and so in a country that's relatively small uh, in terms of population like Australia, I we always have some Australian students at Juilliard, and I, I will generalize again. I think they are some of the, the more curious, and I don't mean curious as an odd, I mean curious as an int intellectually curious uh, types. Uh, there, there's a sponge quality to, to the average Australian musician that I've encountered, uh, and that uh, there's, there's, there's food to be, to be gathered in other places that you might not get here. And one of the great rewards for us is to know that people have studied with us and then gone back actually and brought you know, their knowledge or their experience or shared or developed something with people uh, in their home country. Paul Mason, you had a comment. I was, uh, my impression is that it, it's less a question now about a choice of um, going overseas or going, going internationally, that it's just the circumstance of being a, a musician, as Paul says, in, in these times. About 50% of the projects that we fund at the Australia Council have, have an international component to them. It's not that they're exclusively about an international activity, but that they, there is some engagement with an artist from, from another country or you know, some time spent in another country as well as touring and things like that. And certainly as a, as a generational behaviour, um, I'm really aware that, um, particularly say in contemporary popular music, um, young artists don't think about, you know, there's a point in their career where they need to go overseas. They start thinking globally from, you know, the first song that they're writing. And, and they're thinking about where are the people who like the sort of music that I'm making all around the world. That's a very nice way to finish our conversation. Our time is sadly up and I'd encourage us to have keep this conversation going. This is not just a conversation that happens in a talk on a Monday night at Melbourne Recital Centre. It's a, it's a topic of much interest globally at many conferences, at many um, institutions of higher learning, certainly for all of us who are involved in presenting music and especially, and it always has been, for those of us who play music with other people and who play music for other people. I'd like to thank our guest speakers tonight, Amy Rhodes, Ben Sosland, Paul Grabowski, Genevieve Lacey and Paul Mason. Please give them a thank you. I'd also like to thank the team here at the Recital Centre, especially Belinda Ash, for putting this whole program together. It's been an incredible day. To the Victorian Government for supporting this MEL and NYC program uh, of events in association with MoMA at the NGV. And of course, especially to you for coming along to listen to us tonight. So thank you and good night.